Hey, I want to just go ahead before we get into today's uh, talk and just mention to you, you do not want to miss what we're going to be talking about next week. We're into this journey looking at this book that was written by James. And I'll just remind you, James is the brother of Jesus. Uh, when you come into the Bible, of course, you want to read everything and you especially pay attention to the words of Jesus. And then you get over to James and you just say, hey, this guy was the brother of Jesus. So he had insight unlike what other people had. But in addition to that, and it's what is true of all of the biblical writers, there's this whole idea theologically of inspiration, which means God breathed, that God would breathe upon these men who had their own human words and personalities and such, and how that God would use them. And so James is like a letter uh, from God to us that God just happens to use, uh, James, to bring. And David Nystrom, he's a great New Testament theologian, and he has mentioned this, that James... Uh, is a book that just helps us to deal with the practical realities of living out the Christian life. And that's why we're involved in this series to talk about how do we practically live out the Christian life and how do we grow in God and how do we understand what is God's purpose and, and plan for our lives. And so I'm very, very excited about what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to go into uh, James chapter 1. And uh, in fact, the guys are going to go ahead and put the verses up on the screen. So... Uh, I want you to look, James chapter 1, this is verse 9, and then we're going to dig into it because he has some very, very unusual language that we're going to need to unpack here this morning. All right, verse 9, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in, in what position? How does he describe it? His high position, all right? Seven of you said that with me. I'd like, for, like the whole group to say it this next time. What's his position? A high position. That is the brother or brothers or sisters in humble circumstances. All right, look at verse 10. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position. Interesting, isn't it? That is so countercultural to everything that we think. In our estimation, we think somebody that is in humble circumstances, somebody that has known the reality of scarcity, that that is just like a low position. Not according to James. He said, the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, and we're going to deal with that, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat. There's a name for that. I'll mention that in just a few moments. And it withers the plant. Its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who, what? Who love him. Now, nobody is going to live forever. You just got to understand that. We know that. And I'm just reminding you of that today, uh, of which many of you just say, well, great. He wanted us to come today so that he could tell us we're going to die. And, uh, but, but it's broader than that. Uh, we do want to. Everybody I know wants to live forever, wants to live a lot of years. In, in fact, I, I recently had some of my family get in contact with me that asked me, could I come uh, back to Atlanta because my Aunt Mary, who's my grandmother's sister, um, was having her 100th birthday party. 
And unfortunately, I was not able to go back to Atlanta, but uh, they told me about the party. She's in a nursing home in the suburbs there. And so all of the family went, as many as, as could. And the nursing home, they threw her this big party, 100 years of age, and they were telling me about it. And I love this aunt. She's a great, great woman of God. And uh, one of my other aunts went over to her and just said, Aunt Mary, Aunt Mary congratulations, today is your birthday. And she was like, well, thank you. She's looking around and the cake and the balloons. Well, thank you. And then my aunt said, can you believe you're 100 years of age today? And she looked and she said, no, I'm not. I'm not 100. Well, you don't want to argue with a 100, you know, year old lady. She's earned, you know. But this is what I was thinking. Man, I wish I could have been there. But I did have another thought, probably a little bit of a selfish thought. I think, I sure do hope I've got some of those genetics of Aunt Mary. You know, I'd, I'd like to think. So here's what I want you to do. Knowing that all of us probably want to live a long, long, long time, and maybe you haven't had a chance to speak to somebody near you yet, here's what I want you to do. Take just a moment, and somebody seated to your left or right, I want you to tell them what age you would like to be able to get to before you vacate the planet. Just go ahead. This is going to be your one good opportunity to talk. What age would you like to get to? All right. You have enough time, I think. How many of you are like me? You'd say, I'd like to get to be at least like 142, just, you know, somewhere in that area. We want to live forever. I mean, like if we can keep our mind and I'd like to say, man, if I could keep my mind, I'd like to live. And some of you, I know, I know what you're thinking. You already lost your mind. But, uh, you know, we just like this notion that we're going to live forever. In fact, I ran across this not too long ago and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, A lot of us, we just think, I'd like to have a lot of years. And this, this is a true story. All right. So listen to it. In Scottsdale, Arizona, There's an actual company called the Alcor Life Extension Foundation, which is the largest cryonics foundation in the whole world. For a healthy fee, now they don't mention the fee, it just says for a healthy fee, your body can be frozen at the point of death. And here's how it happens. Your blood will be filled with anticoagulants, and then you'll be stored in a capsule of liquid nitrogen that will freeze you to minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit until you can be reheated later like a pizza and advanced medical technology can cure whatever diseases killed you in the first place. So, you know, a lot of people are thinking about things like that. Or, uh, as this report goes on to say, if you don't like being cold, there's a Seattle company called Immortal Genes, and it offers eternity in a paperweight. Listen to this. For $50, $50, they will preserve your DNA in a little box for the next 10,000 years so you can be cloned whenever it's convenient. They also, that's not the end of it, they also offer a 10,000-year money-back guarantee, though it's hard to say who will collect it if things go wrong. So it's just something for you to think about, just something for you to consider if you're thinking like, well, you know, there are some options out there. But the reality is, friends, and James is making this abundantly clear, 100%. The mortality, I heard it said before, the mortality rate today still hovers somewhere around 100%. Somewhere around 100%. All of us 
are going to die one day. We're going to give up the existence as we know it now. And James is making it abundantly clear that earthly life is very swift, especially when stacked against eternity. And what does James do to, to really accentuate this point? He offers to us an image, and it is the image of a wildflower. And while I was working on this talk for today, and I was reading what James was saying, that our life is like a wildflower, and it just like blooms out of nowhere, and then it, it's gone, it reminded me of some plants. I don't even know what kind of plants or flowers they, they are, but they've been out in front of our home since the day we purchased it. It was planted by, you know, the builders or the previous owners. I, I don't know which. But it's amazing because uh, on occasion, a couple of times, a couple of three times a year maybe, we can just walk out of the front door of the house and like all of these beautiful white flowers that were not there the day before are all of a sudden in like full bloom. I mean, just beautiful. And it just adds, you know, to the yard and how things look. And you just look at it and say, man, yesterday you didn't even see any semblance. And now just these beautiful white flowers. And then just as you are shocked by their appearance in a matter of a day or two, you're also struck by their disappearance because just as quickly as they bloom, it's just as quickly as they are gone. And that is what James is talking about. And when he mentions this, his hearers could quickly picture what he's talking about. He says it's this wildflower that, uh, that appears to bloom overnight, but then comes a scorching wind. Now, others have written about what this scorching wind was. It was actually a very, very hot wind out of the southeast. In fact, it was so commonplace that it had a name, the Soraka. And this scorching southeast wind would come, and James said, for these wildflowers that have, like, bloomed overnight and are so beautiful and add so much uh, zest to life that in just a matter of time, the plant withers, its blossom falls, its beauty is destroyed. It just comes quickly, and it goes quickly. And James is saying, again, our life stacked against eternity is much like the wildflower. And he takes it even out further than that. And he says it's true for a person no matter what the economic reality of their life is. He says it's true for poor people and it's true for rich people. Their reality is identical. Both will surely die as surely as the wildflower dies. And then James gets into this very puzzling language that you saw just moments ago, contrasting the position of those who have serious abundance, to which he says they have a low position. Interesting, isn't it? And those, he points out, who have known firsthand the plight of scarcity. And he says of them that they have like this really high position. And you read that, and, and if you're like a lot of people like me, you, you've read that at some point in the past because I've read it many, many times before, and like I didn't get it. And so I just kept moving, you know, a person in humble circumstances, their high position, a person who has wealth and abundance and affluence and their low position, and I, I don't, so I just keep reading, not really thinking about it until I was working on this talk. Now, I think one thing that would be happy for, uh, helpful for all of us to understand is this. And the time that this was written, when James penned these words, in the Roman Empire at this particular time, 90%, 9-0, of the people lived at the poverty line or below, and there was no other options that they could really advance themselves, that they could make the circumstances of their life better unless they lived in perhaps a, a cosmopolitan city such as Corinth. 
But most people never have the opportunity to live in a place like that. They would never have the chance to break out of their poverty. Nine out of every ten people in the Roman Empire at this particular time lived at or below the poverty line. And James understands this. And he starts talking about it, and he's talking about the, the, the brevity of life and how, you know, like the wildflower, we just we appear on the scenes. And again, God purpose, God destined. But just as surely as we arrive comes the time when we depart from this world. And then he gives us some things to think about, really. And he, and he talks about a, a person in humble circumstances. In fact, I want to deal with that for the next uh, few moments. Why is the status of a person in humble circumstances considered such a high position. It's confusing if you don't unpack it a little bit. And let me just raise the question again. Why is the status of a person in humble circumstances considered a high position? And I want to give you three things that I think ought to give us something to really process through and think about. I think it's the mindset that James had that he would want all of his his hearers to fundamentally understand about their own lives, this humble circumstances yet a high position. And so I want to give you three things that I think that he would probably be accentuating in that regard. Let me give you the first one. Why could they just sort of be glad about their high position even though their circumstances were less than ideal? Here's the first reason, because they have become a chosen child of a most high God and adopted into a privileged family. James could say, no matter how tough it's been, you know, the despair that you've had, the the unrest that you've had, the anxiousness that you've had because of the economic pressure of your life, you can be glad in this reality that you have been adopted into the family of God, a privileged family, and your father is the God that owns all things. I have an 18-year-old niece. Her name is Kyla, and her life has dramatically changed from what it was. You see, many, many years ago when she was very small, my sister and brother-in-law adopted Kyla out of what was a difficult family and very difficult circumstances. And today her life, because she has received so much love and so much care and, and so much compassion and provision, really, and just sort of this buoyant spirit that she now uh, possesses because You know, she was adopted into a family that would love her the way she needed to be loved and care for her the way she needed to be cared for. And James is saying, even if you have known worry, even if you have known unrest and distress in this life because of limited resources, do not forget that you have been adopted into a privileged family and you have a father that owns all things. I'd like for you to read this verse with me, everybody. The guys are going to put it up on the screen. John chapter 1, verse 12. Everybody, let's read together. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So like like James is saying, you know, I know it's tough. And you know what, friends? I know that um, even in the theater this morning, Although we live in a land of of much blessing and much prosperity, there are scores of you, perhaps, who you just struggle from day to day and week to week. And the circumstances, not because you lack motivation or desire, 
It's just you're doing everything that you know to do. And it just seems that there still remains this lack, and it's never enough. And how are you going to keep putting food on the table? And, and, you know, the rent is coming due, and you know you don't have the resources for that yet, or, or the insurance is overdue. And he's like, oh, man, every day that I wake up, there's this pressure that I have. And, and James would say, hey, time out, time out, time out. Stop for a moment. Stop for a moment and just think about this thing long-term. Long-term truth is for you, even though it's tough right now. Don't ever forget you've been adopted into the family of God, and God is watching over you, and God's going to take care of you. Let me give you a second reason why I think James could point out that people who have humble circumstances can, you know, take joy in their high position. Secondly, because of a level playing field, to utilize the God-given spiritual gifts that they've been given by God, to level the playing field, to be able to use the God-given spiritual gifts in ministry. I was thinking about this not too long ago, and I remember it so well, even though I was only 10 or 11 years old. I can remember, remember that in my neighborhood, there was my friend Mike Freilich. And Mike was a little bit older than me, but Mike had this very, very cool uh, a motorcycle. And I, I was just like, man, I would, I would love, I'd love to have a motor. I knew that my parents could not afford to provide me, you know, a dirt bike like that. But I just thought, man, that is so, well, what compounded that was not only did Mike Freilich have a nice motorcycle, so did my friend Steve Easter's. In fact, still to this day, even though I was 10 or 11 then, still to this day, I remember exactly what his motorcycle looked like. It was a Yamaha. It was a yellow and black Yamaha dirt bike that Steve Easters used to race and races all the time that his dad would enter him to. I can, in fact, see on the side plate, little white plate, his racing number on that. And I just see Steve riding around these trails not too far from where we lived. And I just thought, man, Mike's got a motorcycle and Steve's got a motorcycle. And to calm and make it even worse, even Angie Humphrey, a girl across the street, had a motorcycle. Even Angie Humphrey had a motorcycle, a little Indian motorcycle. And I just thought, I don't even have to have Mike's motorcycle or not even this racing, uh, you know, dirt bike that Steve has. I would be content to just have a little Indian motorcycle to just ride around because at least I can maybe keep up with my buddies because I certainly couldn't do it on my bicycle. And can I tell you, it was so limited, we didn't even have a self-propelled lawnmower that I could sit on that and try to keep up with them. And, you know, I just look at that, and I, I don't mind telling you that there were times when I'm just like, You know, I'd feel inferior to that, and I'd be, like, jealous. I don't like that about myself, but it was true. I'm just like, you know, golly, and a little bit of internal, you know, frustration with my parents. You know, like, why couldn't you? And yet I knew why they didn't. It's not that they didn't want to. They just could not. And so feeling from time to time, I'd I'd walk out there and see them all riding, like, wow, that looks like a lot of fun. And just feeling that self-pity, you know, why don't I have a motorcycle? I'd love to have a motorcycle. I deserve a motorcycle. I got to push this lawnmower. That's my motorcycle. And, uh, and yet, for me, and I, I don't know if this makes sense, but for me, it was like when I could step onto an athletic field, like a baseball field especially, it's like all of a sudden there was this great equality with them because it was like, I may not have a motorcycle, but I felt like I had some God-given athletic uh, talents that I could use. And like anytime I was on the, on the baseball field, it's like, you know what? 
I don't have to feel any self-pity. I don't feel jealous for anybody out here. I don't, I don't feel like I've been given a, a raw deal because it was something about the playing field being leveled, and I felt like I could make a contribution. And the reason that I mention that is I know that there are a lot of people that, maybe in a different way, even as adults, just look. It just seems like everywhere that you turn that people have things that you would like to have but you don't have. And it's like, man, if, if I just had that, if I, if I just had their money, if I just had their clothes, if I lived in their house, if I drove their car, if I was a part of their family, if I had that job, that talent, if I had their look, then things would be so much better. But you know what I love so about the body of Christ? It's like when any person, no matter where their position economically, and we take the spiritual gift that has been divinely entrusted to us by God, and we bring that onto the field together, it's like soon as we do that, there's this immediate equality that we all have. It's not like while we're serving together, and loving God and, and, you know, using our spiritual gift. It's not like, well, you know, this person's status and that person's status and this one is lower than this one and that one's. No, it's just like the whole playing field becomes level and there is this immediate equality because we're serving together, almost unconscious of the things that so often want to occupy our mind. Well, James would say a person in humble circumstances ought to consider their high position. They ought to keep in the forefront of their thinking that they have been adopted into a privileged family. They have as their father, the God who owns all things. The, play, the playing field is incredibly level because they're deploying their spiritual gift, and there's this incredible equality. And let me give you a third reason. Here's a third reason, and that is the promise of an eternal home in heaven that's going to be filled with tremendous abundance. An eternal home in heaven that is filled in, with tremendous abundance. I've seen so much contrast in my lifetime in this regard. I've had the opportunity, and I'm thankful for it, to have seen and stayed in some beautiful places. I can remember not too terribly long ago our, our family being on a, on a vacation, and it was a new place we typically didn't stay. And just as we got out of our vehicles and walked into this you know, particular condominium over on the beach and just looking out across, you know, the water and just seeing the surroundings and just thinking, man, I, I sort of hate it. I'm only going to be here a week. And, you know, you'd just like to stay there a little bit. You'd like to stay there a little bit longer. But how many of you know if you only pay for a week, they're not going to let you stay a month. Eventually, you're going to have to leave. And then I think about the contrast of that. I can remember a number of years ago being on a missions trip, and I hope that many of you are thinking about our upcoming trip. It will change your life in so many ways. Bolivia, you need to sign up for that. You need to be a part of that. And we were on one of these trips. Had a medical clinic, construction team, children's evangelism, much like we will on this year's trip. And the missionary, his name is Phil, he said to me, he said, hey, you know, uh, I want you to come with me for a while. We're going to be gone a few hours, and I knew that all the teams were going to be okay. He said, I want to show you a place where we're trying to make some inroads for God. And we just went on this trip. We had been driving for quite some time, and I noticed that we started up the steep Ecuadorian mountains, and I noticed there were a lot of people sort of, at the, you know, the lower portions of the mountain and just sort of waving, you know, as we went up the mountain. And I can remember coming into the, I think, the most abject poverty, place of poverty I've ever seen in my life and walking into this house. I followed Phil into the house. 
And there was a family that he knew. I didn't see a father around, a dad around anywhere. Saw a mom. And I saw her house was so small, you probably could have put about four or five houses just on this one stage right here and walking in and light bulbs hanging from bare walls, furniture that, you know, you couldn't even call it furniture. They would call it furniture, but you or I never would. And looking at this dirt floor and knowing she would never have a chance to think, you know, do I want carpet or do I want tile or do I want wood floor? Just that would never, it's just a dirt floor. And just thinking, you know what? One day this, this woman's neighborhood in heaven is going to be the same as everybody else. She's about to one day, whenever she does pass, she's going to enter into a place of tremendous abundance. And you may be here this morning, you may have struggled your whole life, and realistically, realistically, your address may never change before your funeral, but in in heaven, everybody's going to live in the same kind of place. Again, this whole idea of equality. And James said, those who are in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. And how can he say something like that? It's like James is wanting to look people right in the eyes and say, I know it's tough right now. I know that you have known the reality of scarcity in your life, but don't ever forget that you have been adopted into a privileged family and your father has promised to take care of you. And when you use the spiritual gift that he has entrusted to you in ministry, everything is equal. The playing field is completely level. And then one day when you close your eyes in this world, you're going to wake into a place in heaven of utter abundance, and you're never going to have to leave. Nobody's ever going to show you the door. You're going to be there forever. You take pride, James would say, in your high position. But then he does something that just causes us all to squirm a little bit. He then speaks to those who have access, to those who have abundance, to those of us who have been blessed with resources above just the existence line. And he starts dealing with that, and he refers to that in unique terms. Why is the status of the rich, we would ask when we read this, considered a low position? What is it that James is really wanting to emphasize here? And I want to give you three thoughts on this one as well before we're done. I think one of the things that James wants any of us, and a lot of us in this room, we've we've been blessed. We have been blessed by God. And I think one of the things he wants us to understand is this. I think he would say to us, you have got to fight against this the rest of your days, and that is rejecting this false notion that you have what you have because you deserve it. You deserve it. Have you noticed how easy it is for you and I to lose our grip on having an accurate self-awareness? It's this mistaken mindset which goes something like this you know what, I've got this, you know, because I'm pretty smart or I'm savvy or I'm persistent or I'm attractive. I have what I have because I deserve it. And although nobody had ever admitted, there can be this little creeping idea that can force its way into our minds that says, you know what, maybe I am a little bit better than some people. And can I just tell you, friends, listen, please, that is really, really dangerous thinking. 
Because at the moment that you or I would start thinking like that, I, I would encourage us to go right to the Bible because there's something about the Bible that will actually snap us back into some sensibility, and, and that is concerning what we really deserve. And I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. And I know what I deserve. I deserve punishment. I deserve to be isolated, alienated from God. I deserve that. I know how I lived a good portion of my life. I deserve, you know what I deserve? I mean, when I really stop and think about it, what I really deserve, and I, I would imagine some of you do as well, I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. And so James is like saying, all right, if you have been blessed, you better be very, very careful lest you think that what you have, you have it because you deserve it. In fact, later on, James says this, still James, he says this, whatever is good and perfect comes down to us from God our Father. It comes down to us. It is not something that you have created cause to happen. It has just been the sheer grace of God. It has come down to heaven from us. And James is like, you don't ever forget that because what you have, if you have abundance, you have it, not because you deserve it, but because it's come down from God to us. Here's the second thought. While those who have abundance should consider their low position, James would say this, with plenty of resources comes greater responsibility and accountability. I was thinking a lot about that this week. You know, the majority of people who currently live in this orbit have just enough means to live day by day. Just enough. They're not thinking about tomorrow. They're not thinking. They don't have a 10-year strategic plan. They're not thinking about the nest egg they need to build before their retirement years. That is, that's not even in the forefront of their thinking. They've not even begun to calculate or talk out with a financial planner. If I retire at such and such age, here's what my income will be. And if my income is X amount dollars annually, it will last me for a day. That is so foreign to them because all they can think about is getting from this day into the next day. And maybe James is wanting us to deeply think about this, that people who have a high position, those who have humble circumstances, maybe part of that is connected to decisions that they're never going to have to deliberate over, like what will I do with this excess or, you know, my need, my existence line, I have enough, I have enough to bring me up to my need, an existent line in my life, but I have actually more than that. Now, what do I do with that? Here's a question that all of us need to continually set before us, and that is, how much is enough? How much is enough? I want you to take a look, a close look at this next verse. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 48, 48 the, the B part. Look at it. When someone has been given, you see it there? When someone has been given what? Much. What's going to be required in return? Much. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even what? More will be required. Please hear me on this. Every one of us, and again, I know, I know that we have people economically that are polar opposites right here, right now in this room. People are like struggling, struggling. They have to remind themselves, I've been adopted into a privileged family. I'm going to live in an eternal place of abundance. The playing field really in the sight of God is level. And then there's those who have to say, you know, 
If I've been blessed with margin and excess in my life, according to Jesus, then I'm going to have to struggle with this tension. How much do I keep for me? How much do I keep for my family? And then how much do I give? How much do I invest to advance the purposes of God in this world? What do I keep for me? What do I keep for my family? And what do I give away? so that I can make a difference in the lives of others. Look at these verses. This is not James. This is actually the Apostle Paul. Look at what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I've seen this so often. I'm not being judgmental, and it can happen. It does happen to us all. But I've seen this enough to know that it is not occasional. It is not coincidental that if we are not very, very careful, if we have Excess, that sometimes affluence will give birth to arrogance. But God is saying there's a way to remedy that. Do not allow, if I have just blessed you uh, extravagantly in some way, or, or you have not just enough to get you up to your need and existence line, but you have excess above that, you have abundance above that line, then why don't you pause And why don't you consider this truth? There is something that will always break the power of arrogance and greed in our lives. And it happens. And you just said, you just saw where Paul says, this is how it happens. You start doing good with what God has blessed you with. You just do good with it. Part of that is developing a generous spirit, and we become. He goes on. Paul continues. You saw it on the screen. You got to be willing to share. You got to know this is not just for me. This is not just for me. God has given me surplus so that I can help others. And you do this, the Bible says. And it's definitely going to impact eternity. It will impact eternity for a lot of people. You start doing this, you start handling your excess in those kind of ways, and enough reaches a point where it's really enough, and you're just looking for creative, a kingdom mentality to say, well, how can I make a difference, and how can I help the poor? Maybe, maybe I can adopt a child in another part of the world. Maybe I can be a part of a uh, drilling a well, you know, partner up with some people so that people have clean drinking water, or people have ample medical care, or, or all these missionaries that, you know, are like a part of our church even that have given up everything they know in America, their jobs, their families, their security, their safety to go into other places. And, and I can take some of what God has blessed me with, and I can be supportive of that, and I can help, and I can have a mindset where I'm going to do things at, at home as well. And, and I know that the eternity uh, of the poor and the unreached and spiritual seekers and skeptics even can be... Uh, their eternity can be changed because I'm taking what God has blessed and it's going to impact the eternity of other people. But Paul goes on out and he says, you know what, it will, will affect their eternity, but it will also affect your own eternity. And you say, well, how is that? You saw it on the screen from 1 Timothy 6. He said, when you do this, Paul said, when you do this, when you've been blessed by God with abundance and you just say, this is not all about me, this is not all for me, and I'm going to do something to advance the purpose of God. When you start doing that, you start laying up treasure for yourself. 
in heaven, a firm foundation for you in the coming age. So it's going to affect those here on earth and their eternity. The poor are going to be helped. The unreached are going to be reached. Skeptics and uh, seekers and people far from God are going to have an opportunity through a purpose-driven mindset and church to really hear about the good news and have their life changed. And the reality is it's going to change your eternity, Paul said, because you're going to be laying up treasure. It's going to be a firm foundation for the future. I heard somebody say this a number of years ago, and I've never forgotten it. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And the way you send it ahead is just say, I'm going to do what I can to advance the purpose of God with the resources that God has entrusted to me. So James would just say, you know what? Rich, poor, doesn't matter. They're all going to cross the same finish line. Everybody's going to die. This wildflower, it's going to be like, you know, stacked against eternity. It's going to be like it just comes up overnight and just as quickly. Life fades. Life is but a vapor, he says. Here for a moment, then it's gone like a mist in the morning, then it all evaporates. He said, if you've been struggling, if you've known scarcity, don't ever forget, adopted into a privileged family. God is your father. He owns it all. He's given you spiritual gifts. Level the playing field. And one day you're going to spend eternity in a place of super abundance. Nobody's ever going to be able to evict you from that place. It will be your forever home. And then he speaks to a lot of people who have blessing. So don't get confused about this. It's not because you deserve it. Because you don't. And you're going to have to fight against greed. And you're going to have to fight against arrogance. And with much and with plenty comes much and plenty responsibility. But you can do something about that. You can lay up some treasures. You can do good. You can share with those in need. You can make a difference in the world. And it will affect their life and their future. And it will affect your life and your future. Would you stand with me this morning for our closing prayer? So where are you at? Where are you at? What did you need to hear from God today? Those who live in humble circumstances, those who are rich, or both, going to die one day. And James would say, so don't let death catch you off guard. You have a window of time. So do great things while you can. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask God right now to just speak to your heart, wherever you're at. See, there's a lot of different people in this room right now a lot of different places that we're at. But I know at some point during this talk today, it's just the way the Holy Spirit words. It wasn't like it all applied to you. It would be impossible for all of it to apply to you. But what you felt, God just say, you know, you got to do something about it. I don't want you to just think about it. I want you to do something. Or I want you to be reminded of a truth that's going to encourage you. Father, we're here today. And we're so thankful for your word. It's so powerful. It speaks to us. And I know that you have spoken to us through your word today, every one of us. And I pray that we will take, that we would not just be hearers, but that we would be doers. And God, thank you for your word. I pray that as we gather back at this place next week, that you would just challenge our hearts, God, as we talk about an area that does affect every single one of us. I pray that we will come and we'll be so eager. We'll bring somebody with us. And Lord, just believe in that their life is going to be changed. 
If you're here today and you just say, you know, Jeff, the reality has struck me and, and I know, I don't think about it that often, but I know my life is like a wildflower and I know one day, I'd like to think I'm going to live forever, but I know I won't. But I want to be sure I'm in right relationship with God. So when that day comes, whether it's sooner or later, that I know I'm going to be in heaven for all of eternity. If that's you, would you just lift your hand right where you're at and just let me pray for you, right where you're at. I want to pray for you. God, thank you for this day. And I pray that every person here would just make sure that in these moments we just say, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you that we did not get what we deserve because it would be hell. It would be punishment. But you, by grace, cause us to experience salvation. So come into our life. Forgive us of our sins. Give us confidence that we can live out the Christian life and help us to do good in this world until our final days. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said. Amen. Love everybody. God bless you. See you right back here next Sunday.